yeah, you know, it's the the bucket from the humanities that is now full first. But if we don't do anything, then of course our buckets will overflow soon too. How can we explain the restraint of scientists in acting upon severe issues they directly experience from their research or in their work environment? I talked to Francine Peters, assistant professor of organic geochemistry and active in the recent protest against the budget cuts for higher education in the Netherlands. I am Sanli Fayez and you are listening to the voice of Utrecht Academy. I'm Francine Petersen. I'm a climate scientist or organic geochemist, which means that I use molecules from plants or bacteria or algae um, to reconstruct uh, climatic changes in the past. I have a laboratory in which I analyze these molecules, uh, mostly in environmental samples. So these can be soils or modern vegetation or uh, old sediments from the seafloor or lakes or yeah, whatever you can think of. Can you tell me one of the recent findings which excited you a lot? Uh, so this could be a project that I'm working on now, uh, which is on the East Asian monsoon. So I have molecules that are from soil bacteria and that are sensitive to temperature and also to precipitation. So they make different adjustments in their molecular structure depending on temperature or precipitation. Um, and they are preserved in the Chinese Lus Plateau, which is a big deposition of dust, basically. That has already been uh, going on. The deposition has already been going on for millions of years. So uh, the deeper you go in the Lus Plateau, uh, the older the material is. And analyzing the composition of these bacterial molecules, I can reconstruct the uh, temperature. And what we can see is that there is uh, a delay between uh, temperature change and monsoon dynamics. So currently the Earth is uh, warming, so we have global warming. And we always think that, uh, well, if it's warmer, there's more trans uh, evapotranspiration, and so there will be more humidity in the air, and so all this water will also, uh, there's also more water to rain out. So in theory, the monsoon system should uh, increase or strengthen or have more rain, become stronger. Uh, whereas what we see in the instrumental data is that the monsoon actually is decreasing. So theory and reality are contradicting. So this is why uh, I started looking into the monsoon in the past to see how monsoon precipitation reacted on temperature changes in the past. And this is how I found out that Actually, there could sometimes be a delay of 3,000 years between temperature change and monsoon precipitation. So this is quite important to know for the, for the future, as maybe one-third of the world population lives under the influence of this monsoon system and is dependent on this system for their, well, for their water availability. So how, how are these people dependent on monsoon? Uh, is this vital for them, or is it mostly coming with disasters and uh, something... Would you like more rain or less rain, actually? Well, it's 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 bo both. So they need the precipitation from this monsoon system for their drinking water and their agriculture. Uh, but of course, if the monsoon is changing in behavior and maybe becomes more erratic or uh, more extreme, then they will get problems with drought or with uh, uh, floods. And it's quite important for them uh, to know. How do you see it from inside the scientific community, the reaction to the news 
and the research that comes out of uh, the scientific community that does the climate research. Uh, so for spreading our opinion to like the normal people, or how do you call them, like the normal citizens that are not scientists, uh, I think we always have a little bit of a problem. So there are still so many climate deniers, or like people that are denying climate change, or that think that scientists do not agree on this, whereas the opposite is actually true. So I think 99% of the scientists will agree that warming, uh, global warming is ongoing and that this is happening and yeah, that it is also related to CO2 uh, emissions and that this is basically people, the yeah, us humans, uh, burning fossil fuels that are raising the uh, CO2 concentrations. So it is in our hands and we did it. We are the ones to blame for this. And it's an inconvenient truth, and so this is why people tend to not believe it, because it means they will probably have to change their behavior, which is hard for people to do. Uh, and so it's easier to say, I don't believe it, or this is not true, or there must be some conspiracy against them. Uh, and I think we as scientists, there is a role for us to provide the actual data, but we are not uh, used to express ourselves in a debate. We are used to provide facts and these facts you can discuss maybe over on the interpretation, but the facts itself are true. There's no discussion about that. Uh, and, and I think for the general public, uh, this difference is not clear. Like it is not clear for them what is facts and what the discussion is about. And yeah, well, 99% of the scientists shares the same interpretation of these facts. I think we observe and we can agree that not enough is being done to counter these influences. You are not only a scientist, but also a citizen and human being, and you see the effects of it also outside your academic sphere. But you know where these things come from and why this happens, and you know firsthand that what has been done or what is being done is not enough. How does it feel? Yeah, it is sometimes very frustrating. So today in the news was, for example, that the uh, climate plans or the yeah climate treaty that this our current government was supposed to make, what we were supposed to have the greenest government ever this time, uh, that they actually couldn't agree on it and that they are not going to do it. Whereas, yeah, we set our high aims or in reducing CO2 emissions, and apparently it's not going to happen or not in due time. So yeah, to me this is very, very frustrating actually. So what I can do is give the good example and like try to reduce my personal uh, footprint by reducing flying, uh, don't have a car, uh, not eating meat, uh, not having children. Yeah, anything that helps reducing the CO2 emissions. But yeah, I sometimes also don't like to talk about it because at, at at a party or meeting new people and then they ask you what do you do and you say you're a climate scientist and then they always ask you is it really this bad uh, is the sea level really going to rise and is it really going to warm and is it unstoppable and then yeah I can only say yes it is true and yeah this is not always the best for the atmosphere at the party you know so this is Warm and clean, the little ones sit by the TV screen.
But if I loosely translate it in Farsi, we have an expression that says that people who don't know, they have only one issue to deal with that they don't know. But uh, people who know have a thousand sorrows because of their knowledge. I think a climate scientist at this moment should contain a lot of sorrows. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is. Yeah, it's a nice. I really like the expression. <laughs> So it's the same. We have the same problem if in our annual conference, uh, the AGU, so the American Geophysical Union uh, fall meeting. It always takes place in uh, in San Francisco, and climate scientists from all over the world get there. So I think it's twenty thousand climate scientists that gather there and discuss climate change, <laughs> and it's always it feels very weird because yeah, all these people that need to travel and all these airplanes and all this yeah. To discuss something so crucial as climate change and reducing emissions, yeah, it's very, it feels very weird always. I mean, the scientists, these 99% scientists and all, all those who believe in science that you say they are convinced they should act. Do you think the scientific community acts responsibly enough in this aspect? Uh, well, depends on what you expect from them and what their responsibilities are. So what is their target audience? So I would also say we are scientists, so we have to make sure that the facts are okay and that we can, we, we try to reduce the uncertainties as much as possible. So it is, I think it is our job to say, okay, if sea level is rising, that we can say with how much and what the uncertainty is on it. So it makes, it is important to know Okay, sea level rising with 20 centimeters or with one meter and in how much time? And is it one meter plus or minus 50 centimeter or is it one meter plus or minus one centimeter? So and I think in reducing these uncertainties, this is our task as scientists and to deliver facts that can be trusted. So I'm not always convinced that it is also our job to um, uh, act or uh, participate in the political uh, debate. But how about the personal things you just mentioned? I mean, it's hard to deny that scientists are some of the most frequent flyers, for example. You know, I don't know the numbers, but maybe they fly twice more than the number of articles they publish, which means that at least every article they publish, they present twice. One can ask, is that necessary or not? And I don't see, not in my university, any plan regarding even discussing how much we fly. Luckily at Utrecht we at least had the discussion on consumption of meat. But scientists, even the climate scientists you mentioned, they are not, to my eye, completely willing to make personal sacrifices even though they are firsthand aware of the influence of their actions. How can I digest this? Yeah, so we, I think that 
or at least what I feel in my department is that we really check, do I really need to attend this conference, yes or no? Uh, so I don't know what everybody does for their holidays if they take a long flight to uh, the other side of the world for this. But yeah, I also try to reduce flying for personal purposes. Do you think that the university should really... Uh, now everybody will gonna jump at me and say academic freedom is under attack. But do you think the university should really regulate the number of flights its employees take for the purpose of science? No, I, I would. I think that scientists would feel. Uh, how do you call that? If the university says you can only fly once per year for y your job or for scientific reasons, I think it would create re awareness at least. But uh, I also think. Yeah, I don't know. It I think it would feel for scientists like they are being limited in what they can do. The Earth is limited, right? Yeah, true. But then I think if it is important for some people to fly and get... If if flying helps them to get together to discuss yeah, something important as climate, then maybe you have to allow them. But it's hard to say this is the threshold, or you can fly or you cannot fly. We watched tragedy unfold. another story uh, when I was looking for jobs I was talking to other people who were looking for jobs and I remember one person told me that in the year that uh, he was looking for jobs uh, with all the interviews he, f he flew 50 times in single year just to give interviews most of them one day two day so and I think half the year he said he was uh, either in the airport or in foreign destinations for all the interviews he made if the scientific community, who is so convinced, cannot take its own issues in a way that it becomes less consuming and less polluting, how can the science and academia in general, because humanities and social science is also part of it, convince the society that, well, 
yeah, you should be careful and you should regulate. Can they at all? I think here it is also important to start with yourself, like for you as a person to give the right example and then upscale it to the university. I think it, th as you mentioned, the discussion on eating meat, yes or no, that that is a good one. And serving meat in the university canteens, I think it's good to think about it because it starts a debate. Uh, and I think by talking about it, people will realize more and more how important it is. Yeah, so this whole climate psychology and climate sociology has become a field by itself that people uh, talk about why there is lack of reaction and things like that. But you mentioned debate and. Let me jump suddenly to yet another debate. Earlier this week, I attended a debate uh, which was organized at the University of Utrecht regarding the, uh, this protest week. And uh, the president of the board was there. And you were also one of the panel members. And uh, you started your uh, proposition with, uh, with the work pressure. And also, you had certain demands. Can you very briefly? Tell me, what is this protest about? So this protest is uh, in Dutch called WO in Actie. So it's basically higher education in action. Um, and it is against further budget cuts for the university. And well, we have kind of put all aspects that come with that under work pressure, because that is how you actually see it on the work floor. So people, of course, always say that they are busy, busy, busy when you ask them how they are doing. Uh, but just looking at the numbers, it it uh, appears that 30, uh, no, wait, all scientists on average together um, work 30% extra time, uh, which is a lot. Uh, and this is basically because the jobs that we have, we cannot do them in 40 hours that we are supposed to work in a week. So we all work extra hours um, and thereby we actually take jobs from other people that could do this. And the fact that we do this is because uh, there is no money to hire these extra people. So the few people that are there, they have to do it. Um, and this is forthcoming from the way that universities are financed. Uh, we, uh, because the finances of the university are based on the number of students that is enrolled and the number of diplomas that is uh, being handed out. And since the year 2000, the number of students have increased by 68%, uh, whereas the funding per student has decreased by 25%. So basically, we have to give more education or we have to teach more students uh, for less money, uh, which led to an enormous uh, uh, increase in efficiency. Uh, and define efficiency. Define efficiency. Well, Okay, so more probably more students per teacher. So the student-staff ratio has um, decreased. So there's less staff per student. Um, and we also get less hours that we can use for teaching uh, compared to what we had. So in order to keep the quality of the education uh, the same or like still excellent as we like to think our education is, uh, yeah, we need to put in more hours. Those hours that we put into education, they go from the time that we have for uh, our research. But basically we are judged on our research output and not necessarily on our education output, which makes that you will do your research anyway, even though if it's in the evening hours or in the weekend. So there comes the 30% extra work. And yeah, 
people are just very, very busy. And for issues like outreach or knowledge utilization or like me as a climate scientist telling other people uh, that it is really this bad and we could do something, uh, there is no time for that. So everything you do uh, for 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 knowledge utilization or uh, outreach is in your free time per definition. Uh, yeah, so I think this is where the Werkdruk or work pressure is, is coming from. And this is what the protest is about. And you had uh, two suggestions to uh, slightly resolve these issues. Maybe you can repeat these suggestions. Yeah, so one suggestion is uh, to cut uh, bureaucracy. So currently there is such a big control on what we do and everything has to be documented. And I'm already spending one day filling out forms before I even have thought for one second. Uh, so if we cut out all those forms, that would like give me one week in the preparation of my course. Uh, so yeah, decreasing all the regulations would be one issue. And another uh, point I think will help is, or what I suggested, is to give every staff member uh, one PhD student. So in this way, you guarantee that uh, science continues and will be done. And also it saves a lot of time of the scientist um, because they don't have to write that many grant applications anymore. So over recent years, the success rate of grant applications, of the funding rate of grant applications has decreased enormously. And for example, the last um, funding uh, rate of the ERC, so the European uh, Research Council, uh, starting grant was 12.7%. And that of the VD, of the renewing samples from NWO was 15%. Uh, yeah, and this is quite low, so that means that out of every 100 scientists, there are 85 scientists spending maybe one or two months of their time on writing a grant that doesn't get funded, and then after this time they have nothing. They have no money, but they also don't have this one publication that they could have written in the same time, or uh, supervised this master student, or done their experiment in the lab, and yeah, that's just uh, it, talking about efficiency. This is not efficient. So, yeah wondering what happens but another thing I observed in that session was that it was not homogeneously distributed so it was eight in the at the night fine and about hundred people were there but they were not from all the uh, faculties uh, another observation I have the symbol of this uh, week is this red square that you pin to your shirt and if I walk for example in Althof I really don't see any squares, uh, and if I see one, I know this Francine Peters. Uh, and when I go to the city center where the humanities uh, departments are, there are many more people wearing this and more active. And the same was during a debate. I think more than 50% of the scientific people, maybe even 80%, were from humanities and social sciences. Why is that? Is the work pressure different? Yeah, I think the many people in humanities have different uh, contracts. So I know there are some contracts that have 80% teaching and 20% uh, research. And if you then don't get enough hours for your teaching, that means that basically all your research time is finished. And you also get in some kind of negative spiral because if you don't spend enough time on research, then how are you ever going to write that grant or that publication? So I can see that this is more frustrating uh, for them. 
is it really humanities issues or you think this is a whole university issue? I think it's a whole university issue, but it will also depend on the type of, uh, of contract that you have. Plus, I think that for uh, the more beta-related topics, the work pressure is still lower. So we generally have more grant money available. So we have a little bit more money than they have at the humanities and social sciences, which, which, well, yeah, which enables us to buy relief in that sense. But rules are for all. So, and this reminds me a little bit of uh, the monsoon, for example. Uh, we can also say the effects of climate change are worst felt in places that uh, you know they have the least influence on. And at the university also, you can say the reason that humanities have so many more students and so little budget is that, well, you can say the distribution is not just. But in any way, this is a whole university that uh, is affected by it. Why is there still so little solidarity between different faculties? Yeah, I've been wondering that already, not just this week, but also before. Like, what happens to beta scientists that they don't want to take one for the team? Or like, because it will improve their own situation as well. But I've heard that, okay, my work pressure is okay or not enough, or it's not bad enough, but also like, I'm too busy to, to support this, or I cannot uh, spare the time at this moment to join the actions. So I wonder what it is about beta scientists that they are not so willing to take action. I think scientists in general are not real activists, so it, has to, it takes a lot for them to protest. So that it is happening now is already quite exceptional, and that is not happening just in Utrecht, but in all the universities uh, in the Netherlands. And uh, what I've seen so far is, per, for example, at the Free University in Amsterdam, uh, where the beta and uh, humanities are more mixed, so they are all on the same campus, that more beta people have joined the actions than at other universities, where there is uh, actually a separation. So we have the same thing here at the Uithof, there's the more uh, exact uh, topics, whereas in the city center we have the more humanities topics. And yeah, it is way more alive in the, in the city center. And I mean, for that we have the Young Academy to mix people. Do you see that also uniformly distributed, even in the Young Academy? Well, I think as the total of the, the Utrecht Young Academy, we said that we would support uh, WO in actie. So we support the Action Week. So I put myself forward as a representative of the OUYA to join the WO in Axi organizing committee. But I've had a hard time actually when I had concrete things that I wanted to have done to have people involved. So everybody says, yeah, yeah, I will support, but they don't actually do anything. So I, yeah, I wonder if this is the, the topic or if this is a general pattern that... Uh, we all like to talk and we like to complain about things and we like to maybe brainstorm about what can be done but if then something if yeah some some physical action is needed or some effort or some time input is needed uh, and some commitment or longer term commitment then it's uh, hard to mobilize people yeah also within also within the OUYA because I'm the one from the geo department and in the WO in Actie committee, I am the only one from the Uithof 
and I'm well, yeah, the only most beta-oriented person in the action committee. Do you see any resemblance between this collective action issue on the issues of higher education in the university and the collective action issues globally on the climate change, or is it a totally irrelevant comparison? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to, if you want to compare, I think it. They they agree in the sense that we are all aware this is a problem, but then it takes effort to do it. So you have to step out of your comfort zone, or it uh, really it asks for, yeah, it asks for commitment. Uh, yeah, and I think we have a role as. Uh, is we have a role model role yeah we 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 should be a role model and take our responsibility and give the right example so others will follow because someone someone has to pull the car right someone has to set the set the new trend and show how to do it and we don't know if this is the right way but at least we have to show that we are committed and we are engaged and that it that we believe that we can make a change because if you show that you believe that you can make a change, then other people are more inclined to follow. And then if you create the right mass, you will, you will make a change. Coming back to the humanities and social sciences, don't you think at the time that the humanities and social sciences had a better time in terms of research time, they should have worked harder to engage the public or at least find solutions? You know, you always say humanities is essential. It is essential for solving social problems. But now we have such a serious social problem. Where is the solution? I always wonder. Ah, oh, right. So you want to leave it to humanities to solve the problem for the whole university? I mean, that's the responsibility also to just solve what is the problem with collective action. Uh, well, I think most of the opinion pieces that are in the newspaper are written by the people from humanities. And they, not just opinion pieces, but they publish on it in scientific uh, journals as well. So they are developing theories and they are publishing about this but, but maybe that's not enough right well, apparently not because it doesn't reach uh, the government so this is the the point how to convince the government that they should listen and take us serious and this is also i think why it is important that beta is sharing uh, the actions that it's not just oh this is the people from humanities again complaining no we have to show that it is the whole university who needs these investments or who at least doesn't need further budget cuts uh, because we cannot no longer guarantee the quality of our uh, education and research output and so yeah you know it's the the bucket from the humanities that is now full first but if we don't do anything then of course our buckets will overflow soon too.